Good afternoon, everyone. Isn't this impressive, Dave, to see all these people hopping on this call? I'm on the wrong thing here. Yeah. There's Barry. Hey, Barry. Yeah. Howdy. Bob Leonard. Bob, nice to see you. Connie, hello. Good to see you again. <laughs> what else we got here? Oh, yeah. This is going to be a good one. Look at this. All right. Well, let's go ahead and get started with Dave Busick, who many of you on this call know. But for the purpose of our listeners on our podcast, I'm just going to do a brief introduction. Dave Busick left KCCI TV in 2018 when he retired from his job as news director, a post he held for 29 years. And I understand, Dave, today is the anniversary of your retirement, which we did not know when we had this conversation about coming on, but it's quite fitting. And today we're gonna to talk about his long career and how the tough hiring and firing decisions are made by the head of a television news manager and what's happening in television news today. There's so many things we can talk about, but I also, Dave, want people to get to know you personally. The kinds of volunteer things that you do are very impressive. But first, let's start with what was the toughest part of your job as news director? So the news director basically is like the editor of, uh, of a newspaper. It's the, uh, I mean, I was in charge of the news department for 30 years. We have another news director on this call, Bob Leonard, uh, who knows about this stuff too. But uh, basically, I like to say uh, it was my fault. You know, anything that went wrong <laughs> was my fault. Um, I was in charge of, of pretty much everything. Um, I like to say I earned all this gray hair uh, being in the news director's chair for 30 years. But uh, it was, uh, it, it was of course, hiring, employee evaluation, employee development, uh, um, uh, budgeting, research, strategic planning. Uh, and then I think the other key thing was just communication with our viewers um, who I tried to be as available as possible. Uh, by phone call, by letter back in the days before the internet, by email, uh, and and be responsive and respond to concerns. Uh, and there were certainly always, always concerns about a story uh, that we did. Uh, KCCI was owned by several companies during my nearly 40 years there. Uh, the last 20, Hearst, uh, which is an outstanding uh, journalist organization. They were an outstanding owner of television stations. But like all corporate things, uh, they required lots of communication as well. Um, so I had, my job was mainly communicating, communicating with staff, communicating with the general manager, who's the guy who's in charge of overall at the station. So that would be sales, you know, the revenue, the engineering, the production, all of that stuff. My thing was just news. We were the biggest department, um, but uh, I had nothing to do with revenue. I didn't want to see the sales department. I didn't want to know <laughs> how that was all going. So I had to communicate with my general manager. Um, and I only had two of them over my 30 years in the news director's chair, communicate with corporate. And uh, so it was just a lot of moving parts. And, and, and then the whole internet thing came along. And, you know, obviously ratings were extremely important. Uh, we were competitive in terms of rating, ratings, the Nielsen ratings. We were competitive in terms of finding stories. And then we had to compete the online, the most page views, and then social media, the most interaction. So it was, and, and it's a 24 hour a day job, uh, seven days a week, Julie. Um, yeah. You know, phone calls at two in the morning, uh, aborting family vacations out of town so I could fly back for some breaking news emergency, like the floods of 93, and, you know, all, all, on and on and on um, when Des Moines lost water service. So um, it was just an all consuming job. I, must have liked it. I stayed there for 30 years. But uh, five years ago today, um, I they had threw a very nice party for me. We said lots of nice things, which happens when you're around long enough. <laughs> and I walked and I walked out of there. And I've been really happy ever since. You know, most people who are in positions of, of leading organizations can hire and fire somebody without it being the talk of the town. How did you manage that? It 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 is, I'm sure it couldn't have been easy to usher out somebody who had a big following or was a household name. How did you, how did that feel? Well, it's like living in a fishbowl and um, uh, you know, everybody had an opinion about my job <laughs> and I just had to deal with that at some point. Um, everybody felt they 
not everybody, but lots of people felt they could do my job better than me, or why did you make that dumbass decision? And they were not shy about uh, letting me know about it. So you got to have, a, you pretty quickly develop a thick skin um, or, or you'll go, go crazy. So there are some very hiring people was always the thing I think I was my, was my strength, finding good people, helping them develop, helping them achieve their career goals. Losing people was the thing that just broke my heart. Uh, losing good people who would leave for either a bigger market, if so, good for them. But you know, near the end of the last few years, I think the great resignation was starting already, um, even before COVID. And we, I was just losing really good top-notch people to public information jobs in government or PR jobs. And that was, it just killed me because uh, I really liked the team that I uh, had built. On occasion, you had to uh, let somebody go. Uh, and in a television newsroom, it's a very public uh, thing. And so you do uh, the best you can managing it. Uh, sometimes lawyers are involved and there's always a conflict there. Lawyers want you to say, mostly not say <laughs> one thing. Whereas I knew that the public relations side of the station and my job really required me to try to explain to viewers why um, this person was no longer at the station, but often the lawyers just would not let you do it. So there was always, always that conflict. And sometimes I would just say, look, I understand, but we've got to, we got to tell we, people are inviting us into their home every night. Now, all of a sudden this person that we've promoted and said is a wonderful person. That person suddenly is gone. We have to say something. I'm going to say something. I'll try and make it as, I guess, uh, keep, keep the language as, as cautious as possible. But sometimes you just have to push back on the lawyers and say something publicly. So it was just, you, you have to develop a thick skin. Uh, it helped to stay off of Twitter as much as possible <laughs> and, and just kind of tune it out. You know, Dave, one thing that I've, has been underscored for me this morning in the process of getting ready for our conversation today was going through newspapers.com, doing a keyword search on your name and realizing how much coverage local media had years ago. We knew who what the ratings were for, you know, local television, local radio. We knew, you know, what you had for breakfast practically. Not quite that bad, but there's just a dearth of that kind of conversation, which you are you are kind of walking in to fill, but it's striking what is different today about what readers and viewers know about what's going on in local media. So Tell us, what is going on in local media? Well, I mean, I think the largest change there is just the change at the register. You know, they used to have a religion reporter. They used to have an arts and entertainment reporter. They used to have a television reporter, local TV reporter. They had all these people who had these niches, and they're all gone. Yeah. And um, so you're right. Um, I started in my job January 1 of 1990, and there was uh, a series of reporters at the register that covered everything we did. They wrote weekly columns. They wrote about the ratings four times a year. They wrote about all the personnel moves. They wrote about a good story we had or a, or a screw up uh, that we had had. Uh, I, 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 the only time in my life that I've done a handspring, I did a handspring through the newsroom, a pretty bad one, when this register reporter who covered us uh, uh, resigned. And uh, I realized I didn't have to deal with the person anymore. And um, People out of the newsroom heard a whoop of joy come from my office, and I came bursting out the door and did a, a really uh, weak uh, handspring to the newsroom. <laughs> so Chuck, and uh, I, Chuck Offenberger and I are sitting there thinking, was that Dave <laughs> Ryan? Was that, who was that? No. Not, not saying. Not saying, not saying. Not saying. But there, there, there were several of them who uh, got, un got under my skin. But that, you know, that's changed. And uh, that's really more a reflection of what's happened in the print world. You know, the, the plus side of having all that scrutiny is that people are engaged. They're, they're tuning into, you know, probably in, in larger numbers because they, they are a part of the process, a part of the news and information about the news and information, right? Um, yeah, uh, uh, abs absolutely. And but, you know, there there are still media reporters in some markets, uh, larger markets. There's just not one here now. So that's one of the things that I wanted to uh, attempt to fill uh, with my column 
um, was to help people see what goes on behind the scenes in a newsroom. Of course, I'm a lot more familiar with TV news and radio news than I am uh, with print, but I covered, I, I told you before we got on, I was sort of this self-appointed uh, register reporter when I was, co meaning covering the register when I, in my reporting days and anchoring days at KCCI, because I was just always very interested in them. So, um, you know, I covered the the sale to Gannett and I covered um, lot, you know, lots of things and knew lots of people over there. So I, I, I've always cared about the register. And so I, I, I know less about that world, but I, I think I know enough to maybe enough just to be dangerous. <laughs> <laughs> well, Chris, what's happening to newspapers all over is classified advertising has gone online to Craigslist or Facebook marketplace or whatever that there's that revenue stream, you know, the realtors, realtors listings are no longer in the well at least not to the extent they used to be advertised in print media that's that revenue's gone all of this all of these revenue streams that legacy media could count on are are no longer reliable sources of income how does what's happening in the broadcast industry that's that's comparable to that well ratings are um declining uh, the audience is uh, is is uh, getting more fractional. What's the word I'm looking for? Fracturing is the word. Um, you know, wh when I was an anchor on the 10 o'clock news with Kevin Cooney uh, back in the 80s, it was not unusual for us to have a 50 share at 10 o'clock. That means fully half of the homes, 50% of the homes that had their television on at 10 o'clock were watching KCCI's news. And the rating would be around 24 to 25. And the rating is a percentage of all the households that have televisions, whether they're on or not. Yeah. So that meant that on any, um, on, on any given 10 o'clock night, an advertiser or us could reach fully a quarter of the homes in central Iowa, which is a market of 33 counties from the Minnesota border to the Missouri border. And of those people watching TV, you could reach 50% of them with a, yeah. an ad in, in the 10 o'clock news. Well, it's no longer like that uh, today. Um, it's, it's considerably smaller. I haven't seen the ratings in a while, but you know, I think we'd be down in the, the shares would probably be in the high teens, maybe low twenties and the ratings are going to be down around eight, nine, 10. Um, but video remains hot. Yeah. Um, and, and advertising advertisers still, despite it all fracturing TV still has a very large, the, one of the largest shares of the media pie, even though there are many more pieces of that pie, but if you want to reach the largest possible share, you can advertise on, uh, on television still to reach those people. And of course, in, an ab in, a, in a political year, which is, in most markets tends to be even-numbered years, you see revenue going up like this, and then down in an odd year, up in an even year, down in an odd year. In Iowa, we've always benefited because we had three out of every four years because of exactly like where we're at right now in 2023, leading up to the caucuses in January or February. So we would always have three good political revenue years out of four, which really helped us. I think, I always think that Des Moines as a TV market, KCCI as a TV station kind of punched above our weight because we were such a good revenue uh, generator. Um, most, of, and, and, and the thing about TV news is that the demographics is old and those people also vote. So politicians and political action committees, they really want to um, wallpaper a TV newscast because they can get a lot for their bucks. The most frustrating thing for me is a TV news director back through my whole career was the emphasis by advertisers on a certain demographic, uh, mostly 25 to 54. And it was like, once you turned 55 and a day, most advertisers did not care about you anymore, which is just insane because it was like, it wasn't that we even had a spendable dollar when, until we got our kids out of college and I could actually go spend a little bit of money, but it was like, nobody cared about us anymore. And so, and, and of course, with the media change and audience change, um, there were just fewer and fewer people uh, who, uh, in the 25 to 54, who were watching. So the audience got older and older and older, but it was like uh, the advertisers didn't care about it. So anyway, to answer your question, I think the revenue is not what it used to be, but it's still damn good. 
I had a boss who used to say the only way you could make these kind of profit margins was uh, dealing drugs or prostitution and owning a television station because the profit margins some years were in the 50 percent the range in a good political year, if wow. not higher and uh, lower than that in a non-political year. But it's a, it's a pretty good business to own a TV station. <laughs> wow. 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 I can only I can only wish. <laughs> Well, I'm going to open this up to our participants here. And while they're getting their courage together to raise their hand, I'll probably call on Chuck Offenberger in a second because he, he sets the table quite nicely. But before we go there, tell us about your, your nonprofit volunteer work today, because I think that's fascinating. I'll, I'll just be brief uh, about it. Um, Laura and I are, um, are both retired, my wife, Laura, and I. And uh, so we, we like to get involved in things. One of the things I'm involved in is an organization called The Free Store, not The Restore. A lot of people get confused, but it's The Free Store with an F. And we're, we have a warehouse downtown that is unbelievably right behind KCCI. And all those years I worked at the station, I did not know it was there because the door was kind of around on the other side away from the station. But um, we collect uh, household items, furniture, linens, uh, kitchenware. Uh, from people who donated to us. And then uh, we uh, warehouse it. And then families come in who are leaving domestic abuse, sexual assault, that kind of thing, and pick out the items that they need to start over in their home. So uh, one of the things I do uh, several times a week is drive a big yellow truck around and I might uh, show up at your door if you called us and uh, I'll pick up your couch or your, your bed or boxes of uh, dishes. Uh, uh, that's usually in the morning, myself and another guy. Then in the afternoon, Laura will greet families who are coming in. It's all by appointment. And we don't vet them. Uh, uh, other social service agencies vet the families that are sent to us. And we help them pick out sometimes a whole house full of furniture. And we'll show up. We'll put it in the truck and show up. And uh, it could be a family of three, four, five kids. And the kids have been sleeping on the floor. And uh, because uh, it just took that long for us to get them set up an appointment. So we're delivering beds for, uh, for the kids to sleep in for the first time you know, in a while. So it's very fulfilling. I wanted to do this because I've been part of, I've been in management for 30 years. I've been part of uh, various organizations, but I'd always been on the board or on the committee. And I wanted to do something with my hands to be able to help people directly. So that's one thing I'm involved in. The other thing I'm involved in is an organization called IRIS, which is the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for visually impaired people. I go in and I read the register for an hour and a half on Friday mornings for this network of radio stations that's, you have to have kind of a special uh, radio in order to hear it or, or hear us on the internet uh, for uh, folks who are visually impaired. I've been very involved in my Rotary Club, uh, very involved in my church, singing my church choir. Um, and and I, I've gotten back involved in the Iowa Freedom of Information Council, which I thank all of you who have uh, uh, both free and paid subscriptions. But for paid subscriptions, I don't donate those proceeds to the Iowa Freedom of Information Council, which does amazing work. And I wouldn't mind if we talked about it a little bit at some point, but let's hear what uh, people have to say. But thanks okay. for asking. So that, oh, oh, and I should say, if you can see the grand piano behind me, uh, I'm taking piano lessons at my advanced stage. I've always played and, uh, but stopped taking lessons when I was 20. So I, I started again a few years ago and have found out how little I knew. <laughs> I'm amazed at how little I knew. Maybe at the close of our time together, you can uh, excuse yourself and go to the piano and play it. I'm oh, terrible yeah. at I, I'm terrible at predictions, but I can tell you that will not happen. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Barry Pyatt, you have your hand raised, and then Chuck, I'm going to go to you next. Go ahead, Barry. Well, one of the things that I always thought was remarkable about KCCI was the longevity of your anchors. Uh, Russ Van Dyke and Paul Rhodes were there my entire childhood. Uh, and you know, there are, have been like four or five between then and now. Uh, and I'm just curious because other Des Moines stations haven't been able to do that. And I'm curious, what was it about KCCI that allowed them to keep their anchors, uh, so long? Thank you, Barry. It's a really good question. It was just something about the culture of that place. I think partly set in motion by Paul and Russ who were there on day one in I think it was July 30th, something like that of 1955. Um, and they just were there for a long, 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 long time. Um, 
Russ was our first news director. Paul was our second news director. And I was the third. I didn't take over until 1990. And they're currently, the person who succeeded me is the fourth. I don't think there are many stations in America that can say that. But of course, we had Kevin Cooney for a long time and, uh, and Molly Cooney and uh, Connie McBurney and Pete Taylor and on and on and on. Um, so there's just something about the culture of the place. I like to think that we treated people well. I, I like to think we gave people opportunities. I think that we promoted from within. I was a benefit of that. I, I was hired as a street reporter in 1979. When Russ retired in 1983, I got to succeed him on the talk anchor desk. When Paul retired from the news director's job, I, I was such a good anchor that they said, Dave, you have a future in management. And uh, so they, <laughs> they uh, moved me uh, into the news director's role. And uh, I think I was probably better suited for that than for uh, being an anchor. But promoting from within so people can see that there's an opportunity so that if you stay, um, it, you know, there, there will be opportunity for you. So I think that's the, the reason. Plus, we were lucky to be owned by good broadcast companies. Um, at one point, we were for sale in the late 90s. And we had some very scary people coming in and kicking the tires. And I knew that if they had bought our station, I'd be gone. A large share of people would be gone because they were bottom feeders. All they wanted to do was cut expense. And when people are around for a while, you make more money. You just do. And, and, and when Hearst came in to kick the tires and started talking to us and we got to meet them, we got down on our hands and knees and we said a prayer to the broadcast gods. Please, please let it be Hearst. And it was. And we were fortunate. Um, they believe in local news. They believe in investing in local news. They believe in treating people right. So all of it could have been undone with the wrong owner. It's happened to a lot of stations, Barry. Thanks. Good question. So, Dave, I, I'd like to use this opportunity for you to promote your Substack column. Tell us more about what you've been doing and what you see and what what kinds of things you think people want to know about local media or whatever it is you're going to be writing about. Well, this crazy person named Julie Gamak asked me to write a uh, column uh, starting last summer, summer of 2022, and it's something I hadn't really considered. So it's called Dave Buzik on Media, so I try to write about uh, media issues. I think my best columns have been letting uh, readers see what happens behind the scenes. Why do we do the things we do? I've written about, you know, why do reporters stand out in the cold on a blizzardy day? Um, what goes on behind the scenes of a, of a TV news uh, debate? Um, you know, wh how do you really settle some of the tough bi political bias issues? How do you set up a culture within a newsroom so that you're trying to hit the ball down the middle of the fairway as best you possibly can? So I think those are the, the, the things that I really like about. However, I was a political reporter for a lot of years and I like to write about the, inter I call it the intersection between media and politics, uh, but sometimes I just can't help myself and I'm gonna write about politics. And I'll get a few complaints about it. Hey, there's no media stuff in, in this column. But the, the column I had this past weekend, I just thought was important to look at the, the cabinets, both under the Trump administration and the Biden administration. We could talk a little bit about politics if you want. And it's a stark difference, uh, the stability of the Biden administration and the complete turmoil of the, of the Trump administration it really wasn't about media. I try to not do that very often, but I'm very interested in politics. And sometimes I just, uh, I like to write about it. So um, that, that's kind of what I'm doing. I try to write weekly. And I try, I try to read a lot of different media um, newsletters and things and, and uh, for ideas. And uh, I try not to get too uh, academic about it. Um, I, I try to give people useful information about, about what they're reading and what they're seeing. Okay, Chuck and then Terry. Chuck? Well, as everybody can tell, Dave Boozy is kind of a real renaissance guy, you know, I mean, from, <clears throat> from all his different interests. and his mean, Which means I'm old. Yeah, yeah, I, I guess so. Uh, but I want to I want to go back to uh, one uh, question about then and now. H how about the size of the news staff of a typical station like KCCI or the other stations in Des Moines? How does the size of the news staff today compare to what what it was, say, 20 years ago? And then I've got one follow up. Yeah, it's it's a it's larger today just because when I started as news. Oh, yeah, absolutely. It's larger 
and I think probably rivaling the size of the current newsroom at the register, which of course is way reduced from where it was. But the reason for that is because we've added so many newscasts. When I started as news director, January 1 of 1990, we had 15 minutes of news at noon. We had a six o'clock half hour and a 10 o'clock half hour. And that was it. Today, we start, and I, all these newscasts were added uh, when, when I was news director. We start now at, we first started in the morning at 6.30 in the morning with a half an hour. And I thought, who in God's name is going to watch at 6 30 in the morning well people did and then it moved forward to 6 a.m a couple of years later 5 30 we now start at 4 30 in the morning we do a half hour at noon we added the five o'clock right after when the flood hit in 1993 the 5 p.m uh, we do we we now have a nine o'clock on me tv a completely separate uh, television station that's under our roof we do three hours on sunday morning we do an hour 10 o'clock on sunday night we're doing nine o'clock you know so it's larger than ever. And I was always in favor of adding newscasts for one simple reason, Chuck, and that is I got to hire more journalists. More jobs for journalists is a good thing. So whenever corporate would come and say, we think you ought to do this, I'd say, great, sign me up. Let's go do it. And uh, so you get to hire reporters, photographers, not in large numbers. People are busy, no question about it. It's a larger staff, but you know, you'd always like to have more, more people. Um, that's that's astounding about the size of the staff. I, I did not realize that. But now the other follow up questions. Let's take you back to the very beginning. And maybe I missed this right at the top. I don't think so. Did you say how where you came from and how you got into this business? No, no. Um, and, and I won't bore people with it just very briefly. I grew up in St. Louis. I was fortunate to be two hours away from the University of Missouri School of Journalism. I, I always liked writing and I just thought, well, I'll go give this a try. And I was interested in electronics. So I thought I'll give radio news a try. So I went and I was a broadcast news major at the University of Missouri, graduated in 1837, uh, <laughs> moved up to uh, Des Moines. And I, I was really lucky to get a first job at WHO Radio, which was a monster in those days, probably still is, but a monster in news. There were 12 full-time people and a few part-timers in the news department then. Five radio stations in Des Moines had active, competitive news departments. But after three years in radio, I anchored afternoon drive, 4 to 6.30 p.m. Um, and uh, I think I could kind of see the handwriting on the wall for radio news, uh, which was that um, it wasn't going in the right direction. And so there was an opening at Channel 8. Molly Cooney had moved out to San Jose. She covered school board. I covered school board for WHO Radio. And my friend Rob Davis said, hey, there's an opening over here for a school board reporter. Come on over. So I interviewed with Paul Rhodes. He hired me on the spot as a reporter. And so I made the transition from radio to TV. I had done some TV at Mizzou. So it wasn't uh, that big of a transition. But I, I just have to tell you, I instantly realized this is where I should have been all along. I loved telling visual stories. I loved being out with, you know, Bob, you mentioned something on Friday, Bob Leonard, about reporters are under such pressure to turn so many actualities today, so many voices, so many packages. And then I, I did all that at WHO Radio. And then I moved to KCCI and I got to spend all day on one story. It mm. was uh, just delightful and write the video and just sort of go out and learn things. And then I, I would just tell people at the end of the day, here's how I spent my day. Here's what I learned today. Here's the interesting people that I met. Here are the horrible things that I saw. Here are the amazing things that I saw the terrible people I talked to, the interesting people that I talked to. So I absolutely loved it. And I loved when live technology came along yeah. uh, that I could just go stand out at the scene of a breaking news story and just tell people what was going on. So anyway, that's how I, that's how I got into it. And um, I loved reporting. I'll just say one more thing. And that is that as I, five years ago today, when I was reflecting back on my career, all of the interesting, great memories were from my days as a reporter on the street. Almost none of them were from 30 years of management. I mean, you don't, you don't <laughs> lay on your, on your deathbed and say, man, I really nailed that overtime budget in 2004. Uh, you know, you think about the great stories that I was on and I saw amazing things and I saw horrible things. And being a reporter is just the greatest job. Indeed. Terry Slendy, you have a question. Hi, uh, Terry, I, how are you? Yeah, good, good. How about you, Dave? Good. I think uh, two of the smartest decisions CBS ever made was to hire Walter Cronkite and Paul Rhodes hiring you. 
So, uh, yeah, I, I, I've been an, an addict for years. When I came here in 1979, the first one of the first stations I watched was CBS and KCCI. And there's something special about KCCI and the ambience. That's uh, so different than the other two. And I just, uh, and, and some of that is some of the things you, st- you implemented and started, I'm sure. I, I'm interested in what you consider the secret sauce of, of KCCI. What makes it different than all the others? It really is, I think back to the earlier question, um, I really, from Barry, I, I really think it is the staff. I mean, I just felt so fortunate to have amazing talented people on that staff and people who were willing to stay and put roots down in the community. I mean, that makes all the difference in the world to have people who had institutional memory about the stories that happened in Des Moines and uh, to have, to get involved in the community, to get involved in church, to get involved in civic clubs and make contacts. That's how we learned things. Um, And so I, I really think that it was our ability to hopefully build a culture in the newsroom where people could advance their careers um, and, and, and feel like they weren't just feeding the beast. There's an awful lot of feeding the beast that goes on in TV news. I mean, it's like the newscasts just keep coming, keep coming, keep coming. And we would run all day, every day, just to find good stuff to put on TV. But you want to make it more than that. You want to, you want to build a culture where it's a team effort and we have some fun. TV news attracts really different people. They are assertive, they are quirky, they are funny, they are uh, surprisingly shy sometimes. I think, I think TV news attracts shy people because shy people suddenly start to get a little bit of positive feedback and they go, oh, I kind of like this. So that presents some issues sometimes um, when, when you have people almost becoming overly aggressive because they're really sort of covering over a basically shy personality. So I, I, I felt like a part-time psychologist a lot of the time, kind of uh, helping make all of these quirky, interesting, assertive uh, people mesh together and make it about the product, not about, um, not, not about individuals. We always said we had a team. We were a team. And one person had the ability to make things miserable in the newsroom. A person with the wrong attitude walks into work, looks like they would rather be somebody else. Almost before I could get to them, another experienced member of my team would pull them aside and say, that's not the way we do things here. You show up on time, you have your game face on, you be ready to go to work right away. It's not about you, it's about us. We called ourselves Iowa's news leader and I challenged everybody on staff to be a leader, whether you'd been there forever in a day like me or whether you'd been there for uh, 15 minutes. If you think people don't observe you and your body language and your facial expressions and how you approach work, I think you're being naive. You can be a leader. You can be a force for good in this newsroom, or you can be a force for bad. There's not a heck of a lot I can do about it other than fire you eventually. But why don't you be a force for good? All right. Sounds good. Thank you. Thank you, Terry. Nikki, you're I got, got myself fired up there. <laughs> Nikki? You- yes. Hi. Hi, Dave. How are you? Hi. Good, um, good to see you. Is that Good Nikki? to see you. I have a couple Nikki of questions. Nikki Schissel. Oh, for God's sakes. <laughs> How are you? It's so nice to see you. We go way it's back. It's good to see you, too. It's been a while. Uh, I have two questions. Uh, one is, uh, how uh, do you choose what you're going to cover? In other words, I have a big complaint that uh, the World Food Pride ha- Prize had 1,300 people in town, president of Kosovo, the president of uh, Ethiopia, vice president of Nigeria, and over 80 countries were represented, and there was literally no coverage. Really? Um, really. Uh, yeah. There was some in the register. The woman, Heidi Kuhn, who was the uh, laureate, the Food Prize winner that year, uh, she it was covered in the register, but there's no electronic coverage uh, at all. For those who don't know, Nikki was Governor Ray's uh, administrative assistant for how long? Well, just his last term. <laughs> oh, just as it just seemed okay. like forever, right? Uh, Nikki? It just seemed, yeah. and it was forever ago. I'm afraid. <laughs> uh, uh, it, it it was. So uh, somebody asked me about the World Food Prize uh, specifically. That the basic process is we get together at nine thirty in the morning. We have a team wide meeting. Everybody on staff, and we go around the room. Here's the things we know. What's going on today? 
And then everybody had to kick in an idea. Um, and then we did, made decisions about what we were going to cover that day. And of course, that plan is very flexible because you can start out covering this, but all hell could break loose over here. So you start flooding people over to the breaking news. And so it was constantly uh, in flux. The World Food Prize is um, not the greatest story for television. And I'll just be brutally honest for you. It's, it, it, we had a term called BOPSA, which is BOPSA video is not good. BOPSA stands for a bunch of people sitting around. <laughs> and so uh, we always said meeting footage was just boring. We, did, we, we wanted to go to meetings, find out about things, but then let's go out in the community and see who's affected by that. Let's find visual things and real people rather than officials sitting around in a room. And, you know, um, God love Ken Quinn. Ken did a very good job when I was news director of coming over every year and saying, here's what we have going on. Here's what I think would be best to cover. Uh, Ken was very proactive and he would make the rounds to each of the newsrooms in town and sell it. I don't know since Ambassador Quinn has left if that's still happening or not. I will say that sometimes the World Food Prize did not things, make things very easy for us TV guys. There'd always be a big luncheon at the Marriott in the ballroom and we'd go over to cover it with our, and, they, and the Marriott staff wouldn't let our cameras into the room because there was some union rule for the wait staff that they couldn't be photographed. And so the wait staff said no cameras. <laughs> and so like we couldn't go cover this uh, luncheon. So we'd say, fine, screw it. We'd leave. Now, the, 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 the state house ceremony is terrific. This is a big, important story. I would argue that it needs to be covered. I don't know why it wasn't covered this year. We always covered the World Food Prize, but honestly, it was almost too big to do justice to it in a basic minute and a half or two minute story. And I always felt, even in my time, that we didn't do the best job. But I hope that answers the question that sometimes sure. it wasn't made easy for us. Secondly, having access to all the right people. And third, it just was not very visual. Uh, there are always ways to try to visualize stories, but I think that's probably why we have not seen as much local TV coverage as uh, you would perhaps like, or I would like. Right. Uh, my second question is, and thank you very much, and that's very helpful uh, to me for in the future, is um, how much does the national anchor for the national news have on your local viewership? Um, I'm not sure I understand. I, well, I if the, the anchor, say for CBS Evening News, does that person's likability or oh. have anything bearing on your uh, viewership? Yes, it does. Um, so audience flow is very important uh, in television. Your lead-in is critically uh, important because it gives you an opportunity to promote stories that you have coming up in the newscast that comes after that. That's one of the wonderful things about us having Oprah for so many years before our five o'clock news. Oprah's numbers were huge. Haven't had anything like that in our four o'clock lead-in. So what was ideal was to have Oprah at four o'clock, us have a group at five o'clock newscast, promote ahead to Dan Rather, uh, at 5.30 before he imploded on us. And that would flow right into our six o'clock news. And then we would have, um, what would we have coming out at 6.30? Uh, we never had Wheel of Fortune, which always helped WHO because lead out is important too. So um, uh, what's that? Oh, we had we had Inside Edition. I think we, we had something else for a while, but it wasn't as good as a Wheel of Fortune. Um, so all of that audience flow is important because you're promoting in the prior program what you're going to have coming up. And, and it's just one sort of feeds uh, on, onto the other. So, you know, the sad thing about CBS, when, it was great when CBS was number one. In, they've always done well in this market, but nationally, they're now number three uh, in the evening news uh, wars. And some of that was just... Uh, the, uh, the implosion of Dan Rather and the, and the loss of trust there when that whole thing uh, happened uh, back when, boy, did we get just, we got slaughtered even locally from viewers who were so mad at us, like we had anything to do with it, but they knew we would answer the phone or I would answer the phone and, and, and listen. But there was also a big deal where Rupert Murdoch went out and stole some of the strongest stations in markets around the country and turned them into Fox affiliates back when he got uh, uh, the NFL back in the 90s. And so CBS was left without strong affiliates in Detroit, in Atlanta, 
in, I'm trying to remember where else, maybe Dallas. And they ended up, instead of being on like a channel eight, they ended up on channel 69. Milwaukee is another one. And so that really hurt CBS's ratings and CBS news ratings. And so, um, and now it's been a bit of a revolving door in the anchor chair of CBS uh, evening news. You know, Scott Pelley uh, was there. Then Jeff Bloor was there for a very short time. And now I think Nora O'Donnell, Nora O'Donnell does a really good job. Katie Couric, of course, was um, uh, just that that was kind of a disaster. <laughs> that did not work for us. She was perfect for the Today Show on in the mornings, but she was she did not work for us uh, in the CBS Evening News. Good but question. Talk about the fractionalization of national media. You know, you, 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 you listen to MSNBC or Fox and you, you think you could possibly be on different planets. Um, it's, it's all part of the problem. We can all hear, we're all siloed and, and we want to hear what we want to hear. And so we can go find that wherever we want now. And there's no common thread. Um, you know, at one time, the register... I always said that journalists weren't smart enough to figure out solutions to problems. Our job was to kind of hold a giant mirror up over the community and say, here's what you look like. A lot of it is good reflecting back to you. A lot of it is bad, but we're not smart enough to tell you what to do about it. That's up to the city council and the legislature and the governor to figure that stuff all out. And, you know, for a long time, the register and KCCI and WHO, they had that mirror up in the sky and we could all kind of see what the issues were and what the problems were. But now that's gone. And there's a thousand mirrors in the sky and you can watch which either one you want. They're all smaller. They've all got a smaller piece of the pie, but it's like, who, who do, do, do I trust this? Is that really a problem when this person says it's a problem, but this media outlet doesn't. So um, it makes it very difficult to govern. It makes it very difficult for us to figure out if we can't even agree what the problems are, how are we ever going to figure out how to solve the problems. And we have problems that need to be solved. Um, so, um, you know, the greatest technological change, greatest change in my career was the invention of the internet in many positive ways, but um, it's also the biggest problem uh, that's happened. Uh, it's changed the way we think in good ways, but it has changed the way we think uh, in, in bad ways. Does that answer the question? Sure, w w sort of, if anybody can. <laughs> what, yeah. What's the pressure of, uh, of consolidation and ownership by an entity like Sinclair Broadcasting, who at one point was actually giving scripts for editorials that, that local news people were supposed to read? I, I don't know if that's still happening, but what's your take on the consolidation of media? Yeah, it's not good. I mean, it's just not good. Uh, newspapers and television should be mostly involved in their local community. You know, the fact that the register doesn't even have a local publisher anymore is just astonishing and hasn't had for years. And now some television stations are doing with, away with general managers where they're having a general manager in one town run that town and this town and that town and that town. Um, and, and it's just not good. You just you don't put roots down in the community that way. Nexstar is over 100 stations. They own WHO TV here. Sinclair, which owns KDSM, I think, still. Um, you know, they've got, I don't know, if they're close to 100 stations. It's how do you do that? I don't understand how you run something that big. The TV business has got too many moving parts and it's too difficult. Um, that It's just not good. They get more power. They are able to command higher advertising rates. They're able to pay less for syndicated programming. Um, so I understand the economics of it, um, but I just don't think it's good uh, because they tend to then make all the stations look alike, even within Hearst, which had 30 to 35 stations, something like that. We all had access to a terrific graphics package and terrific news sets and all that thing, that kind of thing. That was all beneficial, but they let us make decisions about local news uh, on our own. Do you think we'll see a day when those kinds, and maybe we already have come to this point where um, a, a, a philosophical viewpoint will dominate a market because that's the strategic plan? I think local news in general has done a good job of staying away from the CNN, MSNBC, Fox News model. I, we really did come to work every day trying to tell um, balanced stories. Now, 
Sometimes those I mean, journalists are supposed to be tough on politicians. We're supposed to do tough coverage on politicians. And, you know, right now in Iowa, one of the problems is that everybody in power is Republican. So if you're going to be doing tough stories on the people in power, you're going to be doing a lot of tough stories on pretty much all Republicans. Um, and, and, and so that's going to open up, open us up to criticism that uh, we're all, you know, all we do is beat up on Republicans. And, and that's not the case. It's just they're the ones uh, in power. I always said that if people think that we weren't tough on Democrats, then they weren't paying attention during the Chet Culver administration. I think <laughs> there was a lot of very tough uh, coverage of, uh, of, of Chet Culver uh, for whatever reason. So I would hope that local news does not go down the path of they're the conservative station, they're the liberal station. I've always said it would be like saying, hey, we're the Hawkeye station. The hell with all you Cyclone fans or vice versa. That's a really dumb business decision to make. We want to be seen as covering them all uh, fairly and and, uh, and and tough if uh, if and when we have to. I see Bryce has his hand up. Bryce does have his hand up. You're up. Hi, now. Bryce. Oh, you need to unmute. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I want to ask a question about local advertisers. There's a mix of national and local advertising in news as it is in other programs. And it occurs to me that some of them, uh, national, for example, but also local. Can uh, we always ask the question about influence? What influence do advertisers have? We find some advertisers that are now have a political sort of a political message. Uh, they approach uh, their advertising in, in that way uh, from time to time. So my question is: Have you seen a change in the impact of your advertisers on your content? that is your news content in particular, that has changed both with regard to message as well as emphasis on local issues as opposed to maybe some other issues that aren't quite so national. So talk about local, you have a big book of, there's a big book of business on local advertising. What impact does that have on what you're talking about? I don't think that there's any influence yet, Bryce, and it's a really good question. And I think it's a common misperception. The, the, the story I always tried to tell is that there's a big wall between news and sales. And the person sitting on top of that wall is the station general manager. And he's the person who needs to keep those two sides separate. It's one of the things I worry about with them taking general managers out of local stations. So it's like, who decides? You know, sales job is to sell and make money. My job was to tell stories and spend money. And, and, I always, I had a great relationship with the sales manager, uh, but I always said, if you've got something you need to talk to somebody in news about, you come talk to me. Don't go, I, I did, if I ever saw an account executive leaning over some reporter's desk in the newsroom, I shoot that person out of there right quickly. Uh, because I didn't even want my reporters thinking about, well, who should I go in? You know, if you were doing a story, a business story, it's like, who do I go talk to? Do I go talk to this hospital or that hospital? Do I, do I talk to this financial planner or this financial planner? And I didn't want our, my reporters saying, well, this guy advertises with us, so let's go talk to him. I didn't even want them thinking about that. I wanted them making independent decisions separate and apart. You, sometimes you get in trouble. You would do a story and an advertiser would pull business. And that's painful for the station, but it's like, it's not my job to worry about alienating an advertiser. So, I believe that that's still the case at most good newsrooms. Uh, there, there's this thing that has started now where there's a, it's not a news produced half hour program. There are some stations in Des Moines that are doing it in the morning after the morning news programs where it's a half hour, but you buy access to get yourself on and tell your story. Oh no. Oh yeah. And now they say it's not a product of the news department. But you can come on and be interviewed for three minutes or five minutes about your about your uh, nonprofit organization or about your business and be able to basically say whatever uh, you want. It's a revenue generator. And as long as they keep that out of news and make sure it's clear that it's not on a new set, no news graphics, no news personnel, I don't have a problem with it. But it's that kind of stuff that starts to creep in that really, uh, really worries me. Um, I wonder that I, you can keep that long range, though, Dave. Yeah, I, 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 there's so much financial pressure. You're right, uh, Bryce. I, I don't know. It take, I think that the serious broadcasters, I mean, this is just a, a fundamental issue. You just don't cross the wall between news and sales. You just don't do it. 
because what, what, what we always said to salespeople who would lose commissions, lose business over some story we've done is like, what do, we, what do you have to sell every night at five, six, and 10 o'clock? You have to sell our credibility. Mm-hmm. And if you force some kind of change on us in news and the advertiser knows about it, the advertiser is going to go and say to his or her colleagues in the business, I got Channel 8 to cave on a story. And there goes our credibility and there goes your most important product to sell. So don't ever do it one time. Thank you. Yeah, you bet. What advice would you have for somebody thinking, some young person thinking about going into television news reporting? Um, It's complicated because, okay, we've got three kids, uh, adult children, who grew up in a household filled with newspapers and talk of TV news and political debate at the at the dinner table every night. Uh, and, and they will never pay for a subscription to a newspaper. Maybe the New York Times is the one subscription, is the one exception to that rule, but to a local newspaper where they live, they don't do it. I don't know that they ever will. They're very well informed. And they would not sit down and watch a local TV newscast at knife point, even though it fed them and clothed them and, and, and put a roof over the head and put them through college. Um, so that's just a demographic reality. So the kids who are going into journalism today, I, th- I think it's all changed. You don't, uh, you don't focus on broadcast. You don't focus on print. You don't focus on web. It's all together. Um, you learn to do all of these things because really you should be learning to write. That's the most fundamental thing. You should be learning to visualize your stories. You should be learning to put those stories online. Um, and and uh, so it's all of that. They're all good skills. Um, if I had to start over again, I would be in internet journalism, online journalism of some kind, because I'm just, I just love it. I love the immediacy of it. Um, I love the feedback that you get uh, right away. And I think that's probably where the future is, you know, rather than newspaper, magazine, or, 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 or broadcast. Broadcast is still a great career. Video is hot. Video is going to be around for a long time. It's not going anywhere. So I think TV news has a brighter, although challenged, uh, future than than print does. You see incorporating some of the video tools that we have available to us in Substack or audio. Does that seem like something you might play with at some point? Or uh... yeah, Bob Leonard's done uh, more of that than I have, and has done a better job at it. Um, I, um, you know, I as much as I love the New York Times and the Washington Post and. I, I, well, I go to read, I go to the, and maybe it's because I'm old, but I, I go to those places to read. If I mistakenly click on a headline and it turns out it's a audio uh, thing, I'm out of there right away, like on the Times website or the Post. I just, I want to read. I want to read at my pace. Um, I do listen to podcasts. I, I listen to a lot of podcasts that I've picked, but um, I think, you know, the, the, the reason that websites push audio and video is you can get more for the ad. Uh, on a on a video story than you can on a on a print story, particularly if it's a pre roll and people have to sit uh, through it, or a mid roll, they have to sit through the ad. So that's I think why it gets pushed a lot. And it could be that younger, uh, obviously younger folks are very interested in uh, who are on, on TikTok and Instagram are interested in the pictures and the videos, uh, but they're short, really really short. So um, I don't know, Bob Bob might want to address that. Um, he's a he's he's way smarter than I am. <laughs> Bob, you want to weigh in here? I have you watched much TikTok videos? Have you gotten involved in that swamp yet? Oh yeah, I mean I've I've watched some. Um, my daughter, I signed signed up only though because my daughter did a video of some stage production and it had ten thousand views and I had to check it out in about two hours. But I'm like I'm like Dave too. I I pretty much go to read. I'll pick my podcasts. Um, and I'll watch some newscasts, but I hardly watch anything or listen to anything at the Times website. I'm like Dave. So Dave, what's on your what's on your news podcast or your podcast playlist? A lot of New York Times content. I listen to the Daily. Um, I listen to Ezra Klein. I, I just think he's so smart, and boy, he asks really good questions. And I'm glad that I, I, I'm not being interviewed by him because sometimes I don't even understand his questions. They're so uh, but they're just sort of above my intellectual uh, levels. I listen to Fresh Air. 
Um, I listen to Pod Save America. Those guys, are, uh, they screw around a little bit uh, more than I would like, but I think it's really good uh, political commentary. So those are the primary. Uh, and then I listen to uh, a podcast from my beloved St. Louis Cardinals. I'm a diehard St. Louis Cardinal baseball fan. <laughs> Any other questions from our group here? Would love to uh, involve. Yes, Leon, you'll need to unmute yourself if you would, please. Love to hear your question. Oh, okay. Well, Dave Boosley, this has been so interesting. And with Thank all you. with all you said about your position, how on earth would anybody want to go into that type of work? <laughs> um, I, I, mean, I would I'm, have. I'm a retired school teacher, and I think my job has been tremendous but i think oh my word what headaches you've had um just multiplied all the time so uh wow my my good friend cynthia Fodor, her desk in the newsroom was outside my office and i tried to keep my door open as much as possible but every now and then on personnel stuff i'd have to close the door but at the end of a what she would see me going through on a daily basis she would come in at the end of a long day and just say i wouldn't have your job for any money <laughs> and, and some days I, I felt that way. It was it's just a lot of pressure. But I guess I, I thrived under it. The best days were when all hell was breaking loose and you could just there was more stories to cover than you could possibly do. And you just knew that people, viewers wanted what we had to offer that night. The horrible days were the slow news days when there was nothing going on and you're pretty much making chicken salad out of, you know what. Um, I, I hated those days. But there was a lot going on between personnel and news coverage. And sometimes... You know, the hard thing to do is uh, well, I was very busy and I would have a full calendar of things and meetings and tasks that I had to get done. And then I would be in more meetings with corporate or with the boss who would think of more things for me to do. And it was like, how can I get those things done when I can't get out of meetings where people are thinking of things for me to do? And, but then you'd have to throw it. I'd have a perfectly planned day, but you'd walk in in the morning and something big had happened and you just throw it out the door and you just you're in live coverage for five hours on, on tornadoes or you know, got the building blowing up, uh, towns burning down. You know, it's just like you just you had to be flexible and uh, and figure it out uh, later. So, some you have to have um, a bit of a gene defect to to go into this business to begin with. And I guess I had it. Okay, Maybe still we're going to wrap up shortly, but first we're going to go to Bernard. But then I want you to close with your comments about freedom of information council and Thanks. access to public public information. Yep. Bernard, go ahead. Uh, Dave, with all your involvement and volunteer activities, how on earth do you find uh, time uh, to keep up with all the reading that you like to do? Um, one of the benefits of being in broadcasting, and Bob will be able to attest to this, is that uh, you don't sleep very long. <laughs> so I get up very early in the morning and make my coffee, and I read for a couple of hours, and then I check in uh, throughout the day. So my the greatest gift of retirement is to be able to get up in the morning and stay, slip into a pair of comfortable jeans, make a cup of coffee or two, and just sit and read without feeling like I got to run out the door and answer. I would get two fifty, three hundred emails a day, you know, in my job, and now I can just sit and read. So that's uh, that's really nice is to to be able to do that. The morning is the best time of uh, of being retired. So, um, I, I just want to thank everybody, Julia. Julie, thank you. Sorry, I have a daughter named Julia. Um, Freedom of Information Council uh, is is a nonprofit started in the '70s that basically advocates for open meetings and open records in Iowa. They do a tremendous job. Our executive director is Randy Evans, a former editor at the Register. Really smart, good guy. And just to give you an idea, there are school boards that go into executive session somewhere in Iowa, saying that they're going to evaluate the superintendent when they don't do that at all they get into executive session and suddenly the gym coach is fired the gym teacher is fired or they pull 15 books off the bookshelves and it's like wait a minute you can't do that in closed session you need to do that in open session so we'll find out about it and some small town reporter or newspaper editor will start asking for this information and they won't give it to them and they'll lie and so the foi council comes in and uh we try to Tell the school board, here's what you need to do. Here's the law. And if they don't do it, we sue them. And we end up winning an awful lot of the time. I say we. Um, I'm, I, I was a long time on the FOI council. I retired and now I'm back on it. Thanks to all of you with your paid subscriptions that I'm able to donate to the FOI council. They do not have a big budget. 
They, uh, they work really hard to protect open records and open meetings and provide a lot of advice to public officials and to journalists uh, around the state. The other thing they do is that they're the coordinating agency on cameras in the courtroom, in state courtrooms, which we have a wonderful program here where the judiciary really supports cameras in the courtroom, as opposed to the federal government where they are banned. So we're not probably going to be able to see the, the, the Trump trials. Supreme Court trusts the Iowa FOI Council to do that and to solve all the problems and not let it get up to the judge. So hmm. I really, really think that they're a, a fine organization and I'm happy to be able to support them um, with my writing. But thanks to your paid subscriptions. Dave, thank you so much. How do people find your column on Substack? Um, I believe it is Dave Buzik, uh, B-U-S-I-E-K dot Substack um, dot com. Yes. And, uh, and, and I appreciate it. And I didn't do a good job of staying up with the chat. Sorry, because I'm on my iPad. So I, I probably should have used uh, something else. So if I missed something in the chat, just, uh, just reach out to us. But it's really nice to see you. Thank you all very much. Thank you, Dave. And at this point, what we do is we go into breakout rooms and people get to know each other in small groups sessions. Mm-hmm. You're welcome to participate, but you don't have to. Uh, thank you again for this fabulous discussion. Thank you. It was really interesting. I enjoyed it. Good to see you all. Take care. Bye-bye.